0: Welcome to Ex Chateau, Ex Chateau, the podcast that navigates the business of wine with unique perspectives and insights with your host, Robert Vernick and Peter Young.
1: Thank you for joining us for part two of our interview with William Kelly, who is the deputy editor and Burgundy, Bordeaux, Champagne, Madeira and English sparkling wine reviewer at Robert Parker Wine Advocate. In our previous episode, 148, he discussed the rise and fall of Bordeaux, and in this episode, we're going to continue on our talk around Bordeaux, where he'll get into the elements like Empremere, Laplace, and the impact of wine critics. Hope you enjoy. There's a lot of talk about Latour leaving the Empremere system, and I'm curious, how did that impact the validity of selling futures for Bordeaux?
0: They left Empremere, but they didn't leave the Place. The result of that is it hasn't really done that much apart from change when you can get your Le Tour delivered, the prices still fluctuate up and down according to the sort of market price, just like they do on the place, just like they do with Emprimeur. Then the wine's still distributed by negotiant. Of course, there is absolutely some direct distribution as well, of course. And I'm sure for the shadow it's worked out nicely, but I don't think it's really rocked the boat or tempted anyone else to leave. You know, for a brand like Le Tour, in a sense, the Plas works quite well because any Négoissons would do anything to have the allocation. It's very easy to sell and they can control their own message. They're not dependent on the, on the place to build their brand for them. And the place is not very good at building brands. I don't think that really rocked the boat. And it's a remarkably sort of durable system. And I think people in Bordeaux are very committed to it still. I and mean, there are people in Bordeaux who think that the Burgundians are going to suddenly see the wisdom of their ways and start distributing all of their whites through the place to Bordeaux because they would make a higher margin. But equally, they would, of course, have a distribution which wouldn't necessarily take the wines to the same consumers. So I think that's something that with two very different cultures. They don't really mutually understand each other.
1: So obviously Latour leaving and still selling through Laplace. And obviously Latour has a well-established brand. But I'm curious on like the synergy for maybe a less well-known Chateau, if they were not to be an on-premier, not getting the mentions or not getting that exposure that you get in on-premier events. Is there a strong synergy between how well you show up in that on-premier and the distribution in Laplace? Yeah, I mean, people think that there are, but the reality is it
0: all comes down to the top 150 or maybe even top 50 shutter. And the more expensive those wines get, the more they monopolize the capital that the negociant have to invest. Perhaps we'll talk about this later, but now you also have overseas wines coming into the place, which further monopolizes capital and also provides sort of alternative, but more modest price points to the top Bordeaux. So the negociant are less and less interested and less and less able financially to take an interest in those lesser shadows. So it's not even necessarily a question of what anyone's looking for. So what do you do if you're a sort of so-called lesser shadow? I think you have to find a way to differentiate yourself. So if it's going to be organic, biodynamic, talking about what you're trying to do that's different, and then trying to create some amount of direct distribution, which is to say working with importers and retailers like normal wine regions do. That's something that's very alien to the Bordelais way of doing things. You have to remember also the shadow bottling about is quite a recent thing for a lot of these estates, a lot of these small estates would well, historically have sold an awful lot of their production to negotiable houses that sold then branded wines, you know, a bit much like Chateau and Duran, whoever in Burgundy still do today. But Bordeaux negociant today, I and mean, of course there are still some that do, but I can imagine you guys might well buy a bottle of Duran, Chateau negociant Burgundy. You're probably not going to buy any negociant Bordeaux. There were various legislative things that were done in Bordeaux that kind of killed the higher-end market of negociant, And I think that's really where we get back to the plight of these Petit Chateau. But then you have to get into quite a lot of sort of political history and whatever of the region to really understand it.
2: Talking about Laplace, how has that evolved over the last decade or two? You mentioned all the non-Bordeaux wines and the focus on the top wines. What else has happened and and what's changing in Laplace?
0: I think those are really the two key trends. I think another is is negociants keep less and less stock. And you've seen yet sort of emergence to dominance of a couple of houses that have worked on a sort of very high turnover, high volume, but low margin model to emerge as very, very dominant players versus people who would taste the wines and buy wines that they believed in, whatever. Back to the point that Bordeaux has always been a very commercial wine region. And so let's not get sort of too romantic about the idea of people buying wines that they like but didn't think anyone would buy. You know, people always thinking about who the consumer is, and rightly so. But I think that's sort of been the big trend. There's been consolidation among the negociants, and there are a couple of very dominant players. And different business models, very rather distinct business models, emerging. With that sort of low stock, high turnover, low margin model, being very successful, at least, looking at the bottom line.
2: Sounds a little bit like the distribution system in the U.S. Too. <laughs> Some of the trends. Consolidation. There are very few industries, but
0: that hasn't occurred, in fact.
2: How do you think all those non-Bordeaux wines joining Laplace benefits the merchants of Laplace and then also benefits the wineries.
0: Yeah, I think the merchants are the perfect. It's a way to sort of update that image and things. that gives them something that's maybe a bit more glamorous to sell. Because in a sense, if you have a low-level classified growth or a non-classified growth, and you're trying to sell that in Bordeaux, it's always being compared with the first growth and whatever. It's always the second choice. Because if you can say, well, you're already buying Bichon Contest, how about some Chianti? Or how about some Napa Cabernet? And it's at the price point that fits your bill. It's more glamorous. I can imagine nothing worse, for example, than being in charge of trying to sell a third wine of a Bordeaux Chateau. I mean, what did you say? This is a stuff that we deemed wasn't so bad that we've had to sell it off in bulk to someone else. Well, what's the selling point? It's very difficult. Whereas if you can say, look, this is from Tuscany and there are Cypresses there and it's Tuscan Sun and whatnot. That's a bit more appealing. It's an easier sell. It's an easier pitch. And then from the producers, where it's a good way to, you know, Bordeaux Bordeaux can absorb any volume of wine. And one year they'll sell it to Korea, and the next year they'll sell it all in Costco and Wisconsin or whatever. But you don't create a durable clientele of informed consumers, but it's a great way to get rid of wine. And the margin of the place is very low. You capture a lot of the value of your products, so whatever the value of that product may be. Perceived economic value of the product, let's say.
2: <laughs> How does all that then impact the Bordeaux producers? If it's hard for them to sell their third wine or other things, do some of their business models start to need a change and shift? Yeah, these Pugichetto
0: are going to be the big victims of it, clearly, because they're already being forced out by the fact that the wines are offered on Primo, but they're not sold on Primo, a lot of these modest estates. I mean, beyond the first 150, the wines don't sell on Primo, they're offered on Primo, which is a way to get them tasted and in the articles and talked about great visibility. But the reality is that negotiants buy them when They have demand for them and when they're in bottle and they can negotiate and so on. So that's how it happens. And those sorts of estates are really getting hammered. So I think, yeah, you're going to see a reduction in the sort of volume of size of Bordeaux vineyards. Is it such a bad thing? It's obviously it's very sad for people who are trying to keep these sorts of minor estates above water. But I think as a whole, our wine culture is moving away from a sort of notion of beverage wines, whereby everybody drinks a couple of bottles of wine every couple of days and people drink wine with every meal and so on. We're moving very much away from that. People are more health conscious, people's lifestyles are no longer compatible. Working hours are not compatible with drinking so much alcohol and so on. So I think the writing is on the wall for any wines that don't sort of have a distinct personality and a real raison d'etre. Is it a bad thing? Is it a good thing? I think it's just a fact of how wine consumption will evolve over the next 30 years. I think we're going to live through a period, we're already entering into it, whereby the greatest wines of the world, or the wines with the most individual personality, if you like, are going to succeed and continue to succeed like never before. And because of scarcity, they're going to become more and more elite products, much as they were before the French Revolution. So we're just turning back the clock. But We've been living in the aberration, historically speaking. And then you're going to see just much less when you're dealing with sort of minor estates of the Medoc, bulk wine producers from the new world. You're competing with beer, with soda, with non-alcoholic beverages. You're competing with everyone's desire to drink less alcohol, cumulatively over the course of the year. So those estates are going to suffer like never before, I think. So I think we're going to see this big sort of bifurcation. We'll find out if
1: I'm right (laughs) in due course. A lot is very easy to make wrong predictions in the wine world, but that would be mine. Bordeaux is kind of the poster child for critic scores of any region. Obviously, with Robert Parker kind of taking over on the early scoring of the 82 vintage. But I am curious on how you see the evolution of critic scores in the region. You know, the fuel of getting the scores, doing them premiere, going through Laplace. There seems to be a very strong correlation of the darlings of the vintage driving either peak prices into the various tranches that are offered on premiere. But I'm curious on how you've seen that evolution change since you've joined reviewing the board origin.
0: There are two perspectives on it. One is the sort of Baudelaire internal perspective, which is very easy to sort of get sucked into. And in the post market era, obviously there's been a proliferation of critical voices there's also been a sort of arms race in terms of great inflation, great compression with scoring, such that I regularly get emails from people saying, you gave me 96 points. Why didn't you like my wine? I mean, this is incredible. Uh, say <laughs> <laughs> so I was already being quite generous and that sort of score doesn't cause any problems for the grand issues of, of de mille conti So maybe there's something wrong with the wine. They don't tend to like that very much. So there's this sort of internal perspective that sees all these different voices, all of them more and more generous and thinks that it's very really gratifying for the ego of proprietors, especially proprietors who don't have the, very much wine culture sometimes, and they happen to own this estate. Do they know who de Villene is? Or have they drunk their own estates 1949? Even, maybe not. Or if they did, maybe they prefer the 2003, you know. (laughs) So we're talking about people who don't necessarily have the same perspective as a consumer, and they see it as very irritating for someone who comes in to try to reduce scores or calm down, scoring inflation, trying to reopen the scale and re-differentiate the scores. On the other side, I meet a lot of consumers who have huge score fatigue and think that the sort of very high scores that Bordeaux is always attracting sort of invariably these days is just implausible and that there's no differentiation, there's a lot of compression. So it's a very delicate balance to try to tread, not that I even think about it that way, but I certainly understand why a lot of people who don't have a sort of platform like I do feel compelled to be more generous with their scores and with their reviews than they might actually like to be. And I don't think it really does border a great service. You know, you look at Burgundy is probably one of the least highly scored wine regions of the world and look at its current success in the marketplace. So I think the shadow owners have often got it wrong. What matters is having a credible review, not necessarily just an outrageously positive one. But then it also gets back to who is your consumer? Do you know who your consumer is? And if you have a distribution where you don't know where the wine is going and it's being offloaded in one continent, one year, another continent, another, maybe a lot of your consumers are going to pick the 97 James Suckling over the 92 William Kelly and think that that means it's a better wine. Maybe they're right. I mean, it gets back to Bordeaux being a very unique way of, distributing wine and having these large volumes that expose it to market pressures, unlike any other region, because I don't think there's any region that has biased to both be as expensive and produce as much volume as Bordeaux, except perhaps some of the prestige cuvées of Champagne. But again, that's a very different dynamic, very different system.
1: I'm sure we could look this data up and map it out. But in terms of correlating the average score that a Chateau is getting for their wine versus their kind of the tranche pricing that they're getting, is there a strong correlation? Because sometimes the scores come out a little bit staggered. I'm just curious if you think there's a strong correlation between the pricing that the Chateau are able to realize with the scores. Obviously, there absolutely was in the era of Bob's Prime.
0: I think Wine could probably remains the leading force amongst several, but still the leading force for what sort of primer price you can get. I have never really seen the effect of the scores on pricing objectively because I've always published before the first release. This is only my second year doing it, but I make a point of publishing it very early. Honestly, it's nice just to be able to write about the wines without hearing what other people have been saying about them or whatever. And it's, I like to have the first word and then taste them in bottle. Maybe I'm happy to be the last person and like to sort of square the circle a little bit like that. I don't know. We'll see a lot. I think in 2021, it was difficult to see the impact of scores because nobody bought any of the wines. <laughs> I don't think I'm exaggerating when I say that. It's kind of crazy. I mean, I was looking at some prices today or this morning. 2021 Aubriant is more expensive than 2019. Promote pricing of 2021 was crazy. And it was all about trying to sort of benchmark future releases. 2021 was not priced for itself. It was priced, in fact, to bring up the prices of back vintages already on the market and to prepare a starting off point for 2022. That's how it goes. I think in broader the price of the wine on Promote has nothing to do with the wine quality. It has everything to do with the market conditions and what people think the market can bear. The shadow
1: owners are not thinking about how good is this wine and so what price does it deserve. I'm curious on scoring as you have changing of the guard. So obviously several transitions for various publications, but let's just look at the Wine Advocate. Inevitably, now that you're tasting the wines versus your predecessor, you're going to have different palates, right? How do you explain that to both either the wineries, but also to the consumer so that they understand the difference? Because you're going to see some fairly different scoring for some chateaus based on stylistic preferences to some extent, right? Mm, Absolutely. On the producer side, I spent three months in Bordeaux last year, visited
0: what, about 450 chateaux, many of whom had not been visited by our publication for several years. And so I tried to have a sort of face-to-face discussions and exchanges that help people understand where I'm coming from. On the consumer side, I think i just tried to give my reasoning. I always try to, I mean, in my tasting notes, in any case, I try to give my reasoning. So if I'm giving a critical review, I'll sit and talk about the quality of the tannins, or override characteristics or crude elevage or whatever it may be and try to give the reasoning. And similarly, if it's very positive, I try to go beyond just talking about the sort of fruits and flowers that the wine's reminiscent of. People were surprised to see me taking it such a different approach to some wines, like Ponte and Pevy and a few estates like that, but... There was also quite a lot of agreement. I mean, you know, I'm not going to disagree with my predecessors about Très de la Tour, or Lévales-Casso, or, or Canon, or plenty of estates. I tried to give my reasoning very clearly. I wrote a long essay about the state of the art of contemporary Bordeaux earlier this year, to really go into the depths of the sort of, where am I coming from on all of this? Just as my work in Burgundy, my approach has always been to try to, yes, we're tasting what's in the glass, absolutely, and that's the final determinant of, of the review. But what's in the glass is largely consistent in my experience with what's going on in the vineyard and the winery, funnily enough. Quality is not random. It's not something that just sort of appears magically. It's something you have to work for. And so I've been trying to get back to that and recouple practices with outcomes. Explain that to people. Why are the wines the way they are? Wine criticism has always ultimately been about taking a stance. Because unless we believe that quality is random, there are always sets of practices and approaches and aesthetic philosophies that we associate with quality. So I've just tried to be maybe a bit more explicit about what I think those are, what we're championing, because the act of criticism is inherently not neutral. There's no such thing as a neutral critique, a dispassionate critique, where we're not clouded by bias about personalities or labels or hierarchies all of those things. Yes, but we're certainly not neutral. We have strong views and preferences, and I think it was time for wine criticism in whole, not just in Bordeaux, to actually talk about those things. Because what is wine criticism without taking a stance? Well, for me, it's just copywriting for shelf talkers. And I think there's quite a lot of wine criticism today, if it's not inappropriate to say so, that could be described as that. Let's call it B2B wine criticism rather than B2C, to use the corporate acronyms.
1: One last question on the pre-release bottling tasting and maybe doing a compare and contrast with Bordeaux and Burgundy. So, you know, it's very interesting when you're in Burgundy, you're tasting a barrel, maybe it's a new barrel, but it's still that terroir. And then in Bordeaux, you're kind of tasting what could be the blend long before the Elevage is actually finally done. And I'm just curious how you wrap your head around that as a critic, because that's always been the part that I've struggled the most with. You're getting these notes on something that it's far from that final Elevage and the blend is a potential blend, right? Like at that time.
0: Well, it depends. Some people blend very early and then it is final. But no, you're absolutely right. There are some people who don't blend until much later. The thing that disconcerts me the most is, let's put it this way, an en sample should taste primary. Because the wine has probably not been put in barrel for more than four or five months. Barrelling down generally happens later mm-hmm. in Bordeaux because people do malolactic in tank rather than barrels in Burgundy. Although some people do it in barrel, which is Bordeaux generally regrettable. But that's that's another subject. And so yet you're tasting these wines that taste quite like finished wines in some cases. Not all. Huh? There's a huge variety in how the samples are prepared. Some people simply take a sample from the barrel of the final blend that tastes the best that they think of all the barrels. You know, no one's going to show their worst barrel. So they try to find the best couple of barrels and they show you that, the cooper that's showing the best. But other people will take, you know, five barrels off and do malolactic in barrel and put them in a warmer part of the cellar and do all sorts of things to try to prepare the sample to make them more like finished wines, essentially more scrutable to people who do not know how to taste from barrel professionally, which is the case of most wine journalists. because Most wine journalists are just wine lovers who are used to tasting bottled wines. So people are not used to tasting heavily reduced Cabernet at five degrees centigrade. And I don't blame them right, for having not had this experience of tasting these somewhat sort of worked over barrel samples. I found that very disconcerting. But I think now, I mean, there was a couple of occasions when I got samples, I was accidentally given samples that were not intended for me. And so I think people understood that I like the sort of less oaky, slightly less creamed up sort of versions of the wines. So, so I'm sure they're adapting. I'm sure they're trying to adapt to me. Honestly, I find it nothing more encouraging when I'm tasting Yang Bordeaux that to taste something that's very primary and still not very evolved in its structure. So there are some states where now I go already in January, February and have a first look directly from the barrels. And then I taste it again directly from the barrels. And then we taste the blend that they prepare in the bottle. I love that. Even if it's still very early to be tasting a wine in its evolution, but it's a very serious way of doing things. If you've had multiple viewpoints over the course of several months, you've chosen your Cooper. I could say, like, let's taste it from a one-year-old darn and then one-year-old or whatever, a new Tarancell, things like that, where I know the Cooper signature also, how the Cooper works with wines. That's what I love, you know. And so it's to that end, I've been trying to taste fewer wines i and trying to actually restricting the sample set and trying to do that sort of follow-up that I would do with the sets in Burgundy. But it's certainly a very unique experience tasting Primo for the wine advocate, that's for sure.
2: What do you think is next for Bordeaux as an industry and a business?
0: Yeah, that's a really good question. I think 2019 on Primo, there were a lot of good deals and the sort of COVID prices, if you like. And it kind of restarted a lot of momentum for Bordeaux amongst serious wine lovers. The asymptotic rise in prices of Burgundy has clearly also made people take an interest in Bordeaux again because burgundy's just gone so expensive in a lot of cases that it's beyond a lot of people's means who are used to buying it. Everything is there for Bordeaux to have another real moment. And I would love Bordeaux to re-engage with genuine wine lovers, sort of people they lost to Burgundy over the last 20 years, rather than to try to position itself as a sort of luxury Product that you can buy in every duty free store of any airport all over the world. For me, that would be sort of fate worse than death. And all the champagne houses want to get out of that, by the way. So all, all the champagne houses are trying to sort of re premiumize their product in a more sort of artisanal, sophisticated place and to get out of just that sort of place. But I think there are some people in Bodo who sort of have this sort of rather first decade of the new millennium vision of what luxury is. It's sort of your heavy bottle in your special box. You open the box inside, is your thing, and it's been signed by some designer or whatever. I don't think that's what people want. Maybe it's a great way to make money, so maybe I'm just not the target audience. I'd love to see that people who buy Munerishi Borg go back to buying Chateau Kennel. I would love to see Bordeaux reassume its traditional place in wine culture, which was a sort of important constituent of any wine lover's cellar. The quality is there, the passion of people making the wines are there. And so the real challenge is for me to do with how the wines are positioned, how they're talked about, and then the media that write about them, which for me is more holding Bordeaux back from that sort of consumer, that sort of clientele that I think it could quite easily capture. I mean, I had some friends over for dinner a couple of weeks ago and we were talking about sort of contemporary Bordeaux and said, like, well, we haven't tasted any young Bordeaux for several years. They said, these are people who drink. Very serious wine all the time. I opened a 2020 franc in saint Emilion, which is beautiful wine, reductive élevage, extremely fresh fruit, very precise harvest dates, very subtle tannins. You know, this sort of explosion of very pure perfumed aromas and incredibly sensual textures, vibrant from limestone soils. I know, like, wow, they loved it. So well, the problem is not the wines. And franc is not the most famous estate by any means. I think they're making excellent wines and the prices are great too. But nobody's talking about it in that sort of way and interesting that sort of audience. Too many people have just given up on Bordeaux. So how do you get the people who've given up to Bordeaux back to Bordeaux, I think, is the big challenge for Bordeaux over the next 20 years. This is only going to be accentuated by demographic change. Because right now there are still a lot of Bordeaux's traditional consumers who are relatively elderly. If we think that Bordeaux suffered after 2010 on premier or whatnot, it could get a lot worse in the next 10, 15 years.
1: I hope bringing back white Bordeaux, you know, classic barrel, fermented, barrel-aged, a full mallow, really interesting, white Bordeaux comes back. Me too, yeah. More
0: Sémillon, the right vine genetics planted in the right places, pressed the right way. And I think if you can save the dry white wines, you can save Soten Barsac as well. Because I think the future of Sauternes Barsac is being able to make great characterful dry white wines for the majority of their production and then making some absolutely extraordinary sweet wines
1: with the right vintage conditions.
0: I think a lot of it comes down to how they press the grapes, their approach to making dried white wines. Because right now it's very much, you know, it's trying to make Sémillon taste like Sauvignon. And it's not always, if you tasted Old Greek from the fifties and things, and like, wow, these were wines and they could do it. But that would be a much bigger revolution than anything we've seen with the Reds in some ways. <laughs>
1: Indeed. Indeed. So we want to wrap up the episode on a personal. What was the most memorable wine that you've drank in the past year? And who did you drink it with? And I know you drink a lot of great <laughs> wines. Let's see if we can hone this down. And I think the with who is an important part of that conversation. I've been thinking about this for a little bit. There were definitely a lot of great bottles and some very meaningful and personal
0: bottles. One that struck me particularly though, if I had to cite one, would be the 1983 Ramon et and it was a friend, is a winemaker in Chassagne-Morichet, whose father-in-law had been given this bottle by Pierre Ramonet. And he brought in, it and had a completely sort of moldy, ruined label. And he brought it to dinner and just handed me that along with a couple of other bottles said, you open anything you like for dinner or it's for your cellar. And I didn't even look at it because I was busy with the wines I had. He's a guy whose wines I love and I respect his work immensely. So I tried to put on a good show. We had some old champagne, had some old Demand Le Fleuve, you know, from before the craziness of Demand Le Fleuve. And I was going to the bathroom and passed this bottle on the stairs, and he said, "Ooh, what's that?" And, it, and so he brought this bottle of eighty three Rameau just to dinner, and as casually as that. And there was no—if I hadn't mentioned it or hadn't opened it or anything—he wouldn't have said anything. We had that between him, yeah, his wife, my wife, and I, and another couple of good friends, and it was one of the probably the best white wine of last year. Although there were a couple of others, but I just loved how sort of modest and humble and unassumingly that that profound bottle of wine was presented. And then, you know, my desert island wine is probably old white Burgundy because it's just pre-Primox old white Burgundy. It's just a unique experience. And it's kind of, you know, you don't get much better than 83 Remonnaie. You can get as good
1: as 83 Remonnaie Marsh, perhaps, but there's really not very much you can get that's better. All right. Well, that's a great wine to end on. It sounds like it was a great evening. William, we want to thank you for sharing all your knowledge. It's always great to learn about what's new with you and also talk quite a bit about Bordeaux and what's happening there, given your new lens on the region. Well, thanks for having me. Yeah, it's always a pleasure. So much appreciated.
0: Thanks for joining us. If you loved this episode of X Chateau, we'd love for you to subscribe, rate, and give a review on iTunes or wherever you get your podcast. Until next time, cheers.